This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. This morning's scripture reading is found in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 21, and it's on page 9 in your service guide. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for him to eat, no for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath. And this morning, as we gather on this Lord's Day, we worship him. We ask that um, he would do the work in our hearts that needs to be done. May your word be planted deep. May it bear fruit. And may you refresh our withered hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have a question for you. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on this one. So, 
How many of you remember the old blue laws? You know what I'm talking about? Blue laws? Okay, there's a few hands. Let me reverse that. How many of you have never heard of the blue laws? (laughs) Golly, Dixie, we're old, aren't we? (laughs) We're old. Um, Blue laws were where states regulated what businesses could be open on Sundays because Sunday was supposed to be a day of rest. Does that sound familiar now? Okay. Um, Now let me ask another question, and you can answer out loud on this one. What AIMS businesses are currently closed on Sunday to honor this? Anybody? Chick Chick fil A. I know that's where you all want to go after worship, right? You want to go to Chick fil A. Chick fil A and what else? Hobby Lobby. Right. Right. Because you have believers that. What is that? Okay. Fairway. That's right. I forgot about Fairway. Okay. <laughs> uh, fairway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But these are businesses where believers uh, honor that day of rest for their employees and for us. And uh, so, yeah, that's they practice that when there were blue laws, and, and now there's no blue laws. But some people still practice that, or some businesses still practice that. Now, I grew up in the South where we had lots of blue laws. We, we had more blue laws than you have up here in the Midwest. Matter of fact, uh, my family had their own set of blue laws. I mean, we, we had the blue law. There's businesses that were closed, lots of businesses that were closed. But my, my stepdad believed in, in having more blue laws. And so you could watch sports on Sunday. You could play sports on Sunday, but you couldn't go fishing. I know, I was like, what? Uh, there were just, there were things like that. I was like, okay. Uh, it just made no sense to me. So the text, uh, did you have anything like that, Brian? You know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah, if you, did your family make any extra blue laws? <laughs> blue laws for your family? You don't have to answer that out loud. It's just, just an odd will do. What? <laughs> it's the older the older people are that they would have their own little set of blue laws to do those things. You couldn't. Do, it's not that you could do things. You couldn't do things. We don't. You don't need to be doing that. You know. Well, the text that we're looking at this morning is kind of like that. And the Jews had Sabbath laws. And if you've done much study of Scripture, you're probably familiar with a few of those. And these laws determined what people could do and couldn't do. And uh, they were very, very detailed. As a matter of fact, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were kind of like my parents. They added to that, you know. They had their own little extra set of Sabbath blue laws that they would say you couldn't do these things and restricted a lot of behavior and you could only walk so far and do certain things. And so uh, what, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through verses 1 through 21 and you're going to see that this, this text, this narrative is going to begin with this kind of discussion. And so uh, let's walk through verses 1 through 21 so we can understand what's happening. So we're going to unpack the narrative, and I'm going to make some application along the way, and then we'll make more application at the end. Our main application will be there. And so in Matthew 12, this marks a shift in Matthew's gospel narrative. In this chapter, we 
find the beginning of people beginning to reject Jesus and beginning to really persecute him because of their unbelief. And so Jesus warned his disciples, if you remember back in uh, Matthew chapter 10, that the persecution would come, right? So if you've been with us as we've walked through Matthew, you remember that that message on that or reading that. And then in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 21, we find the beginning of that rejection and that persecution. And so Matthew uh, 12, verse 1, it sets up the scene here. And then here we find the clash. We call it the, I'm call it the clash between the Jews and the Pharisees. Listen to verse 1 again. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And so our narrative walks uh, are opens on a Saturday morning, probably, as they walk through these grain fields. And the disciples were hungry, and so they just grabbed some wheat uh, in that wheat field, and they rubbed them together and popped them in their mouth. That was what they did. And apparently the Pharisees were either nearby or walking with them, which may not have been uncommon. There was probably a group of people uh, just around Jesus, walking with him. And, and when they saw that, they just cried foul, right? Uh, you know, penalty, throw a flag, you know, uh, the, the, we have the conflict now. We have a clash, now we have a conflict. They look in verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw, <clears throat> excuse me, saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so in the disciples' mind, what they did. It was completely harmless. Leviticus 19, verse 9, and also in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, the farmers, uh, they were commanded, as they planted their field, not to harvest it all the way out to the edge. And the reason they left the edges unharvested is so that when travelers walked by, they could grab some grain as they make their their, uh, journey. Or the poor people who didn't have much money, they could go and glean that as well and have food. It would make provision for them. It was a way of showing kindness to them. And so the disciples were not stealing when they did that and, uh, and ate that grain. But it, stealing was not the issue. If you're thinking that's what may be the issue, the issue for the Pharisees was when they picked the heads of grain. And the Pharisees, in the Pharisees' minds, uh, plucking that heads of grain on the Sabbath and just rubbing them in their hands and popping them in their mouths was considered harvesting, all right? And so they had broken the blue laws. They had broken the bluest of the blue laws. And so they were upset about that. And then next, in verses 3 through 5, we hear Jesus' correction of the Pharisees. And in these verses, Jesus gave two examples of how God's people did something that seemed to break God's law, uh, but actually it didn't. It appealed to a higher law, the higher law of mercy. So look in verses 3 through 4, and we'll hear what Jesus said to them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but for, uh, only for the priest. And so when Jesus said, have you not read, he, he kind of shamed the Pharisees. You know, they should have known this. Have you not read? I mean, these are the guys who studied the law. These are the guys who read it all the time. They were the most educated people in that day. 
And they should have thought of this text. And so in this story, David and his men were being chased by King Saul. If you're familiar with the story, this is in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel. Anyway, David and his men were running from King Saul. Saul's trying to kill them. They get to the town of Nob. uh, And uh, in Nob, the the tabernacle is set up at that time. They didn't have a temple then, but the tabernacle is set up. And Ahimelech was a high priest at that time. And David and his men... And they were starving. They'd been making this journey. And they got to the tabernacle. They're starving. They go up to Ahimelech. He said, have you had, do you have any bread for us to eat? And he said, I don't have anything. Only, the only bread that I have is the bread of presence, which is not lawful for you to eat, but only for the priests that are serving at that time. And that's like 12 loaves of bread. And so David requested that his men be allowed to eat that bread. So Ahimelech had a choice, right? Uh, Should he withhold the bread from these starving men because the law said they couldn't eat it and only the priest should eat it or apply the the spirit of the law of mercy and feed David's men? And so what we find out is Ahimelech applied the law of mercy and allowed those guys to eat and kept them alive. And then in verse 5, he gives one more example. He reminded them, the Pharisees, how the priests who do temple service on the Sabbath, And these men worked very hard, and they would teach on the Sabbath, and they would lead in prayer, Uh, they would uh, proclaim the word, they would sacrifice or slaughter and sacrifice animals on behalf of the people. And these guys were working really hard, but the Lord did not consider their work as priests in service to the people and to God as breaking the law of the Sabbath. You tracking with me? See what's going on here? And so... They, that, that's what the, the law required them to do, and that wasn't breaking the law of the Sabbath. And they were, probably worked harder than anybody doing anything, probably most of the time during the week. And so in these two, two examples, Jesus establishes what we might say is that the law has priorities. And in David's circumstances, human need supersedes the Sabbath law of the bread of presence in the temple. And in the same way, the priests who serve on the Sabbath by leading the people in worship in the temple were not breaking the Sabbath law. And so that's the examples that he gives them to show them that there's got to be some service here. And it's okay to serve on the Sabbath. It's okay to show compassion. It's okay to show mercy on the Sabbath. And then after he gave them, uh, corrected their understanding of the Sabbath, he made a stunning claim in verse 6. So look in verse 6. He said, I tell you something. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And so Jesus told them that while they're all concerned about the Sabbath laws and right worship of God, that something greater than the temple was with them, was in their presence. In other words, the one whom the Sabbath is about, the one whom the temple is for, is with them. It's with them. The Sabbath was designed for man to rest in God's presence. And on that day, uh, they were supposed to trust in the Lord, be reminded of that. And in the temple, that was designed to enable men to be in the presence of God on that day and worship Him. And Jesus was saying, hey, The presence of God is with you in me. Something greater than the temple is here. And so what he is doing, he is making an implicit claim that he is God. We keep hearing this, don't we? As we walk through Matthew, Jesus is letting us know who he is. 
And so in other words, if the temple, if the priests in the temple service, they didn't violate the Sabbath because they were serving God's people and, and serving God, and the disciples' service to Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath either. Why? Because they were already in the presence of God. They were already there by being with Jesus. And so likewise, it was right for David and his men to eat the bread of presence, uh, which was in the tabernacle. And if it's right for that, it's right for the disciples to satisfy their hunger and eat with Jesus because there's the presence of God in Christ. And Jesus didn't stop there by letting them know who he is. He didn't stop there. He, he, after that claim uh, in the, that he's the presence of God, he gave a command. Look in verse 7. And he gave this command from the position of that he is God. Listen to what he says. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy. He didn't say God desires mercy. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And so we often think of this verse when we hear it as Jesus calling us to be kind and to be nice to one another. And there is that element of compassion and kindness there. But it's much more than that. Jesus is quoting Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 6, and verse 7. That's what he's doing. And Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, for the knowledge of God rather, uh, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so here's the deal. For us to get our minds around what Jesus is saying as he quotes Hosea and we need to know what he's talking about. We need to know what Hosea is saying, and we need to know what the phrase steadfast love means. And so the word or the phrase steadfast love in Hosea 6.6 6 is the Hebrew word for hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and it means steadfast covenant love. It can also be translated mercy. It can also be translated grace. And if you remember any of your Hebrew poetry, you, you're very familiar with Hebrew poetry, right? <laughs> okay, I know. Uh, let me explain this to you. In Hebrew poetry, they use, it uses a literary device called parallelism. And it'll, on one line, it'll make a statement. And then it'll give you a second line at that poetry, and it will unpack or explain the previous statement. So, you understand the first statement, and the second line gives even more clarity to the original statement. You tracking with me now? Okay, so that's what goes on in Hebrew poetry. Now, now that you're with me, let's read Hosea 6.6 6 again, okay? For I desire steadfast love, right? Mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. And so the steadfast covenant love or mercy of God, it's further defined by understanding that it involves knowledge of God. So mercy is not simply just a call to be kind and to be nice. It, it's, it's a call to understand the covenant that God has made with His people and love others in that same way because that's the way God loves His people. You see, biblical mercy that Jesus is talking about 
involves knowledge of the covenant of God working in the hearts of his people. And so for us to understand the depth of the knowledge of the covenant of the love of God, we must look to Jesus who is the embodiment of that. And so they look forward to what Christ would do. We look back at what Christ has done. And when we look back at that covenant, that steadfast love of God, what we see is our Savior hanging on the cross, fulfilling that covenant, being buried and rising again on the third day. That is the embodiment and the ultimate of God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness and God's compassion. And it is the glory of God that we see there. See, that's what the covenant is about. And so the steadfast covenant love of God is seen in Jesus. His broken body on the cross that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. His his blood that was spilled that establishes the new covenant. That's how he has shown us mercy. So when Jesus said this, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And so he is saying to them, you're so quick to condemn You're so quick to condemn others for what you perceive as law-breaking and quick to sacrifice your animals, but you cannot find it in your hearts to show compassion and mercy because you know why? You have no knowledge of the steadfast covenant love of God. You don't know Him. You don't know Him. You're guilty of the very thing that you are accusing the guiltless of. That's what you're guilty of. Wow. They got that. But Jesus is done, right? Man, he just drove a stake in their hearts. He's done, right? Nope, he's not done. He has one more thing to say here. Listen to his conclusion. And this is a statement that infuriated the Pharisees in verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so we've seen the title Son of Man earlier in Matthew. And so if you remember, it is not simply a title of Jesus' humanity. Oh, that's where we see Jesus' humanity. Jesus said He's Son of Man. It is part of that, but it is also Jesus' divinity because it comes from Daniel, the Son of Man, who is God represented in the Old Testament. And so it is both his humanity as you see him and his divinity together in that one person of Christ. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not merely equal with King David. I'm not merely equal with the temple. I'm greater than the temple. The presence of God is with you. And by taking this title, he claims to be God in the flesh. And it it, it is that title from Daniel. They knew what he was talking about. And Jesus then says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And so now he takes a title that goes all the way back to creation, right? That's where the Sabbath began. And on the seventh day, God rested. Why? To enjoy what he had created. And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath because I created the Sabbath day. And I have authority on the Sabbath because as the creator of the Sabbath, I can say what is permissible and not permissible. In the minds of the Pharisees, man, their, their, their minds had to be grinding gears at that time. What is he saying? What is he doing? But Jesus is not done. 
He's not done. Look in verses 9 through 13. He confirmed that he is the Lord of the Sabbath when he healed the man with the withered hand. And so after this long discussion on mercy with the Pharisees, and Jesus doubled down on the Sabbath, and he's Lord of the Sabbath, and, and it's lawful to heal. On the, and, and they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? These verses, they began that with that question. And so you would think they would already know the answer to that question, but they're, they're trying to trick him. They want to get him. They want to get him and, and uh, they want to accuse him. So they ask him that question, believing that he would heal that man and so that they would, could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath himself. And so Jesus did what he usually did, didn't he? This, right? He answered their question with a question. And so notice what he said in verses 11 through 13. Which of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more value is a man than a sheep? It is, is, uh, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. See, the Pharisees knew the answer to the question. They knew that Jesus would do that. And they knew the answer to the question, is man not more valuable than a sheep? Is it right to pull him out of a pit? And if he falls in a sheep, they, they knew that. Why? Because sheep were valuable to them. Sheep were valuable. Oh, they would pull sheep out of a pit, but they wouldn't pull a man out of a pit. Why? Not enough money in it. Not any money in that. You see, God loves mercy more than money and you see they would save a sheep because of the money but they wouldn't help the man on the sabbath because there's no money in it and so jesus on the other hand he came to set the captives free and it's going to cost him it's going to cost him his life why because he loves his people and that's what he came to do to lay his life down so people would know the love of God. They would know the fulfillment of the covenant. You see, Jesus exposed their hearts. He exposed their hearts when he healed the man with the withered hand. And then in verse 14, he brings the Sabbath controversy to a close with uh, what happened. They began to conspire to, to kill him, right? So here comes the persecution. Here, here comes the rejection of uh, of Christ that we were talking about earlier and they had had enough and now they simply wanted him dead and gone so they took counsel together and they began to make a plan to kill him and so events are coming together now and we're clearly moving toward the cross where Jesus would die and, uh, to, and that he would need to do he's going to do more than just heal the man with a withered hand he's going to give his life for our withered souls that's what he's going to do He's going to give himself as a merciful sacrifice on the cross. And so finally in verses 15 through 21, we see God's chosen servant and his ministry to his people. And so the, Jesus knew the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He knew that. And so uh, he left that place and he continued, to, he continued to heal on the Sabbath. He didn't stop there. He just kept on going. He kept healing people. In verses 18 through 21, that concludes this unit of Scripture with God's validation of Jesus as the chosen servant. And he quotes, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Let's read that. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel 
or cry out, or he or anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew observed all of this, and the Spirit of God is working in his life, and he thinks of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, and that's what he helps us to see and understand that. He had heard Jesus preach to the crowds, hey, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is seeing this chosen servant being embodied in Christ, and he is moved by that. And in all of what he had seen and he had heard, he recognizes the chosen servant. Listen, Jesus didn't come just start a popular production, right? He didn't call, come just to call the elite to himself. And he came to serve the down and out, the vulnerable, the weak, and the needy. Jesus didn't heal this man with a withered hand just so he could get this platform and then call all the popular people to himself. All the strong people to himself. He didn't do that. What did Jesus do? He, listen, look at what he did. He, he healed the man, and then he retreated in humility and continued to serve the weak and the needy. So the phrases, bruised reed and smoldering wick, that's not phrases that describe strong people. That's the vulnerable. That's the outcast. That's the marginalized. These are the ones that Jesus came to serve and to save. You see, we don't, we don't come to Jesus thinking, hey, I, I deserve to be saved, Jesus. Look at me. We don't come thinking we're strong. Listen, until you see yourself as weak and needy and undeserving like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, listen, it's hard to understand the mercy of Christ. It's hard to get it. Hard to get your minds around it. You've got to be there. You've got to understand that that's you. And me, why? That's, we're Gentiles, right? Unless you're Jewish by birth, ethnicity, we're Gentiles, and that's who we're going to hope in Him. We're, that's us describing us. Well, let's pull this text together and make some application. And before we make our application, you need to understand two things here. First, there's lots of application in these 21 verses, all right? I, and I can't cover them all. Second thing, there is one main application. And I'll give you that at the end. But let's draw some truths out of this and make our application. First thing, we are called to show gospel mercy and compassion in our lives as followers of Christ, as his disciples. That's what we're called to do. And a, this is a theme that runs through the text is the mercy of Christ. And we see our Savior showing mercy to the least of these. The broken, the weak, those who are suffering. And we're called to follow his example. And I don't know what that looks like in your life and how you would do that or where you would find that opportunity to do that. But I can guarantee you, if you're walking with Christ, he's going to give you those opportunities. We're called to show mercy and compassion to those who are just barely hanging on by a thread. But remember, it's more than just kindness, right? He's not saying just go out and be nice and be kind. It's, it's mercy and compassion that is what? Grounded in the knowledge of the covenant that God has made with us through Christ. And we call that the gospel, right? It's grounded in the person and work of Christ. 
And so friends, one of the purposes of gathering on Sundays is to remind ourselves of the Gospel. And so as the saints gather on Sundays, and in our Gospel life groups as well, we seek to listen to one another, our hurts, our pains, our struggles, our weaknesses, and we pray for one another, and we encourage one another to do what? To hold fast. We lift one another up in our weaknesses. Listen, that's what we're doing. We're we're helping the bruised reed that's sitting next to us, the smoldering wick that's on the other side of that table that's just about to be snuffed out. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Hang on. Let me pray for you. How can I meet with you this week? So showing someone gospel mercy and compassion, it's not just some random act of kindness. It could be. That'd be okay. But, and it's not just, listen, here's, it's not this either. It's not just doing whatever a person wants to alleviate suffering. Don't hear me say that. Mercy's not just, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to do something to alleviate their suffering. It is the mercy and it is the compassion of Christ informed by the steadfast love of God, right? So, Stay with me here. For example, in Romans, Paul teaches us that it is God's kindness that leads us to what? Somebody tell me. Repentance. Repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. I must face the fact that I must turn from my sin and to Jesus, right? That's a merciful act. This means God must make the most and make the fullness of the effect of the pain in my life that causes me to go, I need to turn to Christ. I need to turn to Him. See, if we just alleviate somebody's suffering by just doing for them and they don't get to turn to Christ, we don't want to short-circuit the work of God. Perhaps the mercy of Christ is not telling them what they want to hear, but telling them what they need to hear. Right? You tracking with me? See, sometimes we just think, I'm just going to, I'll just give them some money and I'll just do this and do that. Hey, have you told them that they need to turn from their sin and turn to Christ? They need to hear that. They need to hear that. Words of mercy and compassion do not mean just telling someone what they want to hear. It means telling them what they need to hear. And not doing for them just whatever they want done, but doing for them what needs to be done. Second application is this. It goes along with the first one. uh, That we need to seek our Sabbath rest in Jesus, right? Right? So we gather on the Lord's day to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are to rest in Him through faith. And as followers of Jesus, our Sabbath rest, it's, it's not on a Saturday, but it's on the Lord's day, on a Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's not a day of inactivity, but it's a day where we show mercy to one another. And we have to, it's effort to get up, to come in, and we meet at nine, and we meet early, and it takes a lot of effort. But we're coming in to do what? To serve not just ourselves, but to serve others by encouraging them and being a blessing to them. 
helping one another bear our burdens. It, it takes effort to meet in gospel life groups, doesn't it? All right? It takes effort to find babysitting. It takes effort to sometimes make a meal. And so Sabbath rest is experienced through all these times that we are helping one another bear one another's burdens, but especially on the Lord's Day. The late pastor Tim Keller said this about Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It is about replenishing the drained. It is about repairing the broken. To heal a man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. It's what we do. So each Sunday as we come in, Jesus restores our withered hearts and souls as we sing together, as we read Scripture together, as we pray together, as we think intentionally about the gospel. Now listen to me. I'm not throwing it out there just as a means to get into heaven. As we think intentionally about applying the gospel to everyday life. You see, the gospel is not just your door to heaven. It is that. But it is also how we live our lives in light of the gospel. It's what the Apostle Paul calls it. Learning to apply the gospel in our lives. And that takes effort. Each Sunday we come and we do that and the Lord works in our lives. And we experience the presence of Christ, right? In that. Third application is found in verses 18 through 21 where Isaiah tells us that the Gentiles will hope in Jesus. And this is an echo of the Great Commission. And so we're reminded as a church, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're supposed to be sharing the gospel in that capacity as I just mentioned. We're taking it to the nations. You take the gospel there, across the street, into Walmart, into Target, wherever you go, finding ways to share the gospel. And the fourth and final application is our main point, right? I told you there's one main point. Hey, the one main point of all, and everything I just said is true, it's good application, but here's the main point of what Jesus is trying to get across. This text it's first and foremost about the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath. He is a God who created the Sabbath, and for us, we need to find our true rest in Him. And for us to do that, we must come to Him in faith and repentance. And he's revealed Himself as God, the second person of the Trinity. That's who He is. Everything that we have been studying in Matthew as we move along in this book, what does it keep coming back to? Who is Jesus? It keeps answering that question. There doesn't need to be a doubt in your mind about who he is. He keeps adding to it and adding to it and taking an Old Testament text and an Old Testament example. And that's the reason why last Sunday when Dean was preaching and he talked about the, the, the John the Baptist disciples come to him, Jesus didn't just didn't go, hey, yeah, I'm him. What did he do? He, he used Old Testament examples to identify who he was. Scripture was pointing to him, this is what's being done. Remember, have you not read? Have you not read? This is who I am. Well, my prayer this morning is that's who you're trusting in. And that's who you're finding your Sabbath rest in. If not, I'd love to talk to you at the conclusion of this service and, and help you with that. Let's pray.